Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the Cardio Nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardio Nerds Fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. We are so excited to be here today. This is Dan Ambinder and Amit Goyle, Cardio Nerd hosts. And we are with very special master clinicians from Lankanau Medical Center. Gwen, Sean, would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Sean. I'm one of the cardiology second-year fellows. I'm originally from Malaysia, and I came to the States for internal medicine residency at Lankanau. And I continue on at Lankanau for cardiology fellowship. My interests in cardiology are interventional cardiology. And outside of cardiology, my interests are rock climbing and playing guitar. Oh, hi, I'm Gwen. I'm one of the third-year fellows um, at Lankanau. I'm originally from Philadelphia, and I did my residency at Lankanau as well. I love it so much here that I wanted to stay for fellowship. My interests within cardiology are cardioobstetrics and echocardiography, particularly structural imaging. Outside of cardiology, I used to have more robust interests prior to the pandemic. Now I enjoy working out on my Peloton and baking. Gwen and Sean, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you spending your evening to teach us and talk about an interesting case. But before we get started, you're in the city of Philadelphia. It holds a very special place in my heart. It's where my wife went for medical school. And I was in San Diego at the time. And so I visited all the time. And it's actually the city where I asked her to marry me. And thankfully, she said yes. So, uh, so I have my favorite place in Philly. But what about yours? Like, Take us to one of your favorite places in Philly, and we can pretend we're hanging out six feet apart, talking about our love for cardiology. Sure. I mean, there's so many good places in Philly, whether we pick one of our favorite restaurants or one of the historical sites or one of the cheesesteak joints. <laughs> also, right outside of Philadelphia, we have so many great places to bike or hike. For example, there's the Wissahican biking trail. There's also the Valley Forge Valley Park. There's really a lot of things you can do. I really like rock climbing. So I actually go to the Wissahickon Valley Park and there's actually a lot of rock climbing spots there. And there's also a lot of neighboring towns along Lankanaw that 
really has a lot of interesting things going on. For example, in the fall, you have the Harry Potter Festival. There's also, yeah, you can also go apple picking at a big orchid nearby. It's really nice. Amazing. So many places to choose from. But guys, I am absolutely famished. So for this discussion, we're sitting around enjoying Philly cheesesteak. I'm vegetarian, so I'm having an impossible steak if they make it eventually. (laughs) But I hear you guys have an awesome case to talk about. Yes, we do. Sean, I heard you saw an interesting patient in structural clinic recently. Yeah, I did. It's such an interesting case. I can't wait to tell you guys. So I first saw this patient a couple months back. I've been following her progress since, but let me tell you her case from the very beginning. At that time, she was a 42-year-old woman who presented to an emergency department at outside hospital with acute onset chest pain. She described the chest pain to be dull and heavy. It was substernal in location and did not radiate. Her only medical history was hypertension. She was an active smoker and also admitted to a history of methamphetamine use, but had quit one year prior and before that had been using for about five to six years. Her family history was pertinent for heart attacks in the father's side of family, although unclear if they were premature. On the mother's side of the family, she said that she had autoimmune diseases, although she was unclear and wasn't able to state which exactly they were. Her vitals were within normal limits in the emergency department, and her physical exam was significant only for an elevated JVP to 11 centimeter water, but was otherwise unremarkable. EKG showed normal sinus rhythm with right axis deviation, and there were T-wave inversions in the interior leads V2 and V3, without a previous EKG for comparison. Labs were significant for an elevated troponin I level to 0.07 nanograms per milliliters, which had risen to 2.2 on repeat, and her UDS was negative. Workup in the emergency department included a CT chest to rule out PE, which did not show any acute findings. She then had an echocardiogram. Would you like to review it, Gwen? Yeah, sure. Let's take a look. Overall, her LV ejection fraction appears preserved, but you can easily tell that there was regional akinesis of the entire apex. The other thing that stood out in her echocardiogram was that her right ventricle appeared dilated with decreased function with an estimated pulmonary arterial pressure of 70 millimeter mercury. Wait a minute, Sean. Did you say her apex was akinetic? How old did you say the patient was? She was only 42 years old. Wow. While it's possible her chest pain, troponin elevation, and apical akinesis could be explained by atherosclerosis, in a patient as young as she is, I like to think of some other causes for regional wall motion abnormalities and elevated troponin, including processes like coronary embolism, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, otherwise known as SCAD, Takasubo cardiomyopathy, myopericarditis, a type A aortic dissection that can extend into the coronaries, or coronary vasospasm. Gwen, those are amazing points. And especially, you know, any patient that's coming in, we don't want to anchor and obviously got to put together the whole history with your young age and gender. You got to be thinking about different things that cause chest pain in that patient population. We had talked about regional wall motion abnormalities. Just want to clarify that these regional wall motions are the left anterior descending artery that usually comes around the anterior intraventricular groove, wraps the apex, brings blood flow to that area of the heart. And so we are seeing a regional wall motion abnormality in a vascular territory. But on the other hand, we're just reflecting back on that echo, we see left-sided problems. We also see right-sided problems. We have a dilated right atrium and a right ventricle that has diminished function, as well as associated pulmonary hypertension with tricuspid regurgitation, things that don't necessarily go with the left-sided problems that we're seeing. And we're going to really have to tease these out as the case goes on. And I'm excited to hear what comes next. So, Sean, what was the next step in her diagnosis? With the findings mentioned before, 
She was brought to the cath lab urgently for a coronary angiogram, which showed a filling defect in the mid-distal LED, while the rest of her vessels were widely patent. Sounds like a coronary embolism to me. Sean, since you are interested in interventional cardiology, could you discuss how to identify a coronary embolism on coronary angiography? Of course, Gwen, I'd be happy to. Coronary embolisms can be challenging to diagnose. They typically appear as a filling defect. You may be able to appreciate contrast wrapping around the filling defect in all sites, giving off a tram track appearance. If that's the case, the diagnosis is straightforward, but oftentimes that's not the case. More commonly, what you see is an abrupt vessel cutoff, which can be difficult to distinguish from local plaque rupture, especially if there's concurrent arteriosclerotic disease in the other vessels. I hadn't thought that much about coronary embolism until I saw your guys' case. And in preparing for the discussion, I found this wonderful review on coronary embolism in Jack Cardiovascular Interventions from 2018 by Claire Raphael et al. And they had a beautiful way of breaking down the different etiologies of coronary embolism. And so they broke it down into three subtypes in terms of the etiology. And one was direct, so coronary embolism that's arising from left-sided structures. For instance, AFib with a clot from the appendage or a clot or other material from the valve or even something like uh, cardiac mass embolizing into the coronaries. And I remember when I was a medical student, there was a patient who had come in with a stroke and then developed a STEMI, and it was all a fibroelastoma that was embolizing into the brain and to the coronary. So that was the first, direct, left to left. The second was paradoxical, which is coming from the right side or venous side, crossing over from ASD or PF or some other shunt. And the third was hydrogenic. And one of the most common causes are coronary interventions, like, you know, not flushing enough or not being heparinized enough, but also cardiovascular surgery. They proposed a criteria system, a major criteria and minor criteria, because it can be hard to differentiate. Is it a coronary embolus or something else? But we'll leave that for the episode notes for everyone to take a look at later. But yeah, how did you guys end up treating this patient? In the cath lab, aside from balloon angioplasty and stents, aspiration thrombectomy could be considered with high thrombus burden. Although, to note, this is somewhat controversial. In all comers of patients presenting with STEMI, there have been no benefits shown but an increased risk of stroke, while a meta-analysis suggested that in patients with high thrombus burden, this stroke risk is offset by a mortality benefit. So in some patients, if you think that the thrombus burden appears significant on coronary angiogram, you certainly want to think of aspiration thrombectomy, although you probably want to keep that in the back burner. Intracoronary imaging with IVIS or OCT in this particular situation could be certainly useful as well. One, to rule out if there's plaque rupture, and two, to confirm the diagnosis of a coronary embolism. And this is particularly important because in the case of pure coronary embolisms, you may not even require balloon angioplasty or stents. That was a great explanation. You're definitely going to make a great interventional fellow in a couple of years. So then what happened next? Oh, thanks, Gwen. So the interventionalist at the outside hospital tried to wire the LED, which led to distal embolization of the clot. They then performed IVIS, which did not show atherosclerosis of the LED, hence PCI was not performed. After that, she was then started on apixaban and tacragular. So Amit just gave us a really great differential diagnosis for sources of cardiac embolism. We should also talk about how to evaluate for these causes. Great idea, Gwen. What is your top process here? So for the instance of atrial fibrillation where a clot could form in the left atrium or the left atrial appendage, one could consider long-term cardiac monitoring, like an implantation of a loop recorder. A routine transthoracic echocardiogram should definitely be performed to evaluate for structural causes, and we should not forget, supplement it with a bubble study to rule out right-to-left shunts. 
And finally, a transesophageal echocardiogram should most certainly be considered as well to evaluate the left atrial appendage as a source of clot. It's funny you brought up bubble study because that's exactly what happened in our patient. We actually repeated a transthoracic echocardiogram, but this time with a bubble study, and guess what it showed? A PFO. So they then proceeded with the transesophageal echocardiogram to further characterize the PFO. And it was at this point that the patient was referred to the Lankanol Structural Clinic. I was wondering when she was finally going to show up at Lankanol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just to chime in, I'm thinking this really fits or it's making us really suspicious that there is some sort of Occam's razor thing going on with that right-sided and left-sided lesion. Really fascinating. I'll add that this is a patient who, if I remember correctly, had apical akinesis in the context of uh, troponin elevation. And so if you go back to the classification, direct, paradoxical, and atrogenic, one cause would be a left and left. And with apical akinesis, you may have apical thrombus. And so on the TEE, it's a pertinent negative. So I'm assuming they didn't find any left-sided clots either in the appendage or in the apex. Right. You know, you could have put this together as she had a stress cardiomyopathy potentially with a dilated non-moving apex and then eventually developed some stasis there and some clot, flicked it off. And while that is not necessarily a slam dunk diagnosis, and you'd wonder, you know, especially finding the coronary embolus in there, but we're sniffing out some serious stuff going on the right side that potentially could contribute to this. It makes it a little bit easier to put the story together. Yeah, and I'll be interested to see what happens next because, you know, we know from the PFO closure trials that if you just test everybody for a PFO, a quarter to a third of the general healthy population will have one as well. And so it'll be interesting to know how we ended up deciding that that was a culprit rather than an incidental finding. So what did you guys do next? Well, so next she came to Lankanol for PFO closure, but good point with the echocardiogram and the RV enlargement and her elevation and her RVSP, because it's a definite red flag for PFO closure at the moment. Yeah, great point, Gwen. I'm so glad you brought that up, actually. The combination of PFO requiring closure and pulmonary hypertension can really be a unique challenge. One needs to proceed with caution if you're suspecting pulmonary hypertension because essentially what is happening is that the PFO is functioning as a pop-up valve. And the valve helps to vent high-feeling pressures on the left side of the heart. And in fact, actually, in patients with end-stage pulmonary hypertension and an intact interatrial septum, in certain countries, they actually intentionally perform atrial septostomy as a form of treatment to unload the right-sided pressure. Again, this procedure is commonly performed in other regions of the world, but in the U.S. it's usually palliative. So it's important to remember if you close the PFO in a patient with significant pulmonary hypertension, it can really cause an abrupt hemodynamic collapse by worsening right-sided pressures, and it can be a catastrophe. I'm so glad you brought up that point because it's such an important point. Like, for instance, when we were talking about adult congenital heart disease in patients with ASU or VSD that develop or are on their way to developing Eisenmenger syndrome with pulmonary hypertension, elevated pulmonary pressures with respect to systemic pressures and elevated pulmonary resistance can actually be a contraindication to closing for the same reason. But then conversely, as you said, there is a palliative approach to creating a shunt to offload the right side. And so you're really at a fulcrum right now because you're thinking that, hey, is PFO the cause of a paradoxical embolus with essentially embolic STEMI? But on the other hand, if you close a structural problem, will you cause acute right-sided overload and hemodynamic collapse? And so how did you guys navigate this management conundrum? Before we go on to, I just want to echo your point. The ACCHA guidelines for treatments of ASD actually specifically states that closure is contraindicated when your pulmonary systolic pressure is greater than two-thirds of your systemic systolic blood pressure. 
And also, if your pulmonary vascular resistance is greater than two-thirds of the systemic vascular resistance, so the ratio to remember is two-thirds, two-thirds. And Beautiful. I think you can apply this in the case of PFO, correct? I would think so. It seems like a very similar physiology. These are really great points, and it really highlights the importance of follow-up. For so many things, you know, you say in the clinic, was follow-up, was just follow-up. ASDs, PFOs, things that really could be game-changers in terms of hemodynamic consequences that develop over time. Sometimes you you see an ASD in an asymptomatic patient and tell them it's nothing to worry about. You have to be very careful that you, you're telling them there's nothing to worry about now. This needs to be followed very closely. And, and nothing to worry about could be confusing. Maybe the better term is nothing to you know, intervene on right now, but definitely something to watch and wait. You definitely don't want to catch these patients when they come back on the flip side, when things are too late and there's been a hemodynamic setup that contraindicates closure. Yeah. And this is sort of a different situation, right? Because this isn't a patient has an ASD or a VSD and they've developed pulmonary hypertension because of excess pulmonary circulation over time. This is a patient with PFO, which usually doesn't cause pulmonary hypertension. And so this patient has a PFO that may be the culprit for an embolic STEMI but in addition to that, also has pulmonary hypertension that will complicate how we approach the PFO. So I'm wondering what the pulmonary hypertension is about, because I sure can't blame that on the PFO in general. And we don't really have baseline heart disease to say it's group two pulmonary hypertension. So I think this question of why this young patient has pulmonary hypertension and, and then tying it back into how we proceed with a possible need for a PFO closure. Great points, guys. And, and just to tie back to the case. So after that, she was referred to our heart failure pulmonary hypertension specialist before anyone was allowed to get anywhere close to the PFO. For further workup, she had a right heart cath and in standard units had showed a right atrial pressure of three, pulmonary arterial pressure of 74 over 24 with a mean of 40, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of five, cardiac output and index of 3.3 and 2.1, systemic vascular resistance of 2200 and pulmonary vascular resistance of 11. Whoa, wait, hold on. Just for all of the early cardio nerds listening to this, the mean PA pressure was what? 40. And the wedge was? Five. Oh my gosh. Okay. So break this down for us because I'm not used to seeing such a discrepancy between the PA mean and the wedge. So that's a transpalmar gradient of 35. And as we know, a cutoff of 12 is when we start really getting concerned about a pre-capillary etiology of pulmonary hypertension. And in this case, if you plug in her cardiac output of 3.3, her pulmonary vascular resistance comes out to be 11. Wow. So really that pulmonary vasculature is super tight. And, you know, although she has some LV function issues, which uh, I, I forget, did it improve on serial echoes after she had that embolus and not embolecticized, but shoved down? She did not have a repeat echocardiogram until a little later on. I think the first repeat that she had showed the same. Her ejection fraction, even at the time of the coronary embolus, was normal. So there is a lot going on in this case, right? So John, remind me, how old is, is this patient? 42 years old. So a young patient who out of nowhere develops a embolic ST elevation MI with a thrombotic occlusion, we think that this is a paradoxical right-to-left embolus coming from the venous side because there's a large PFO. You can see the bubbles on a transthoracic echo. And, you know, what's the setup for that, right? Because normally with the way the pressures are, the left side pressures are greater. And so you ambiently usually have left to right shunting. But I wonder if it's the pulmonary hypertension that increases the right-sided pressures and increase the risk for a right to left shunt and thereby predisposes the patient to a paradoxical embolus. And so the questions in my mind right now are, 
why does this young patient have such severe pulmonary hypertension? And two, the clot we said, sure, it came from the venous side, but it still has to come from somewhere, right? And so like, where is this clot? Like, does she have a DVT or uh, some other pelvic clot? You've definitely got my interest, guys. What's going on here? Why does she have pulmonary hypertension? And where is the clot? Really good point here. It really feels like this is a chain effect starting from the venous system that started off with pulmonary hypertension, which opened up the PFO and caused the clot to travel to the left side, causing coronary embolus. So it's really a downstream chain effect from multiple events. So for investigation in this patient, aside from getting the echocardiogram, the TEE, and the right heart cath, she did have bilateral venous ultrasound of her lower extremities, which did not show anything. Ah, fascinating. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So the hunt continues. What's going on? And don't forget her CT PE protocol initially also was negative for clot. <laughs> oh, but one teaching pearl that I received, seeing pulmonary hypertension and seeing evidence of a clot and thinking that we have paradoxical clot, I'm thinking a lot about CTEF as a cause for pulmonary hypertension, which is chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. And maybe that's something. And the teaching that I had from our pulmonary hypertension people, Dr. Matai, is that the CTP protocol may not be the best test for chronic CTEF. And rather, the VQ mismatch is their preferred way of assessing that. But yeah, I, I agree. Uh, that CT without any evidence of clot and now negative lower extremity DVTs, like, we're, we're puzzled. I'm intrigued. And then on the other hand, you know, if you see a big PE, that's a big clot in a major central vessel, right? This was a tiny little thing, but it just sort of went to the right place at the right time or, or the wrong place at the wrong time, right? I mean, you really need such a... To cause a STEMI and obstruct flow in the LED, you really need such a tiny clot that in any other patient who doesn't have a substantial right-to-left structural shunt physiology, in any other patient, it would just be a subclinical infarct, right? I mean, one of the goals and values of the pulmonary vasculature is to filter the venous side so that way you can't get things going to the left side because that's where our brain is and we get a stroke. So this may be just sort of a, a small subclinical clot that we never would have known about had the patient not had both a structural problem that allowed it to travel to the left side and a hemodynamic elevation of the right side of pressures that created a setup for shunting from right to left. And so maybe the clotting isn't a big issue. So I'm really zoning in on what is the etiology of the pulmonary hypertension and how do we just fix this structural problem in a safe way that will allow the lungs to do what they're supposed to do, filter subclinical clots. And obviously, you know, oxygen exchange and all this stuff are pulmonary friends. That's a really good point. Sean, so did you figure out why the patient has pulmonary hypertension? So for the fun of this, let's go through the WHO group classifications of pulmonary hypertension. And with that, we'll work through what are the investigations that were done for her and review how we essentially arrived to the diagnosis. We love fun and we love classification. So hit us. All right, here we go. Group one. Pulmonary hyperplasia of the pulmonary arteries. Let's see. She does not have a family history of pulmonary hypertension, which suggests it's against a familial form. On labs, her ANA was negative, and other screening labs for connective tissue disease were negative. She also tested negative for HIV. On imaging, there were no suggestive findings of pulmonary vascular occlusive disease. She did, however, have years history of methamphetamine use, so that definitely rose on our differential. And Sean, remind me, what grouping does methamphetamine use or amphetamine use go under? Substance use all fall under group one. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, methamphetamine, cocaine, things for weight loss. Fenfen is one of them as well that falls in group one. Great, thanks. All right, let's keep going down the list. 
Group 2 left heart diseases. Thinking back to our patient, her left-sided pressures on the right heart cath were normal. It wasn't her wedge pressure 5, so that clearly rules this group out. So based on that, we know it's not post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. It's going to end up being a pre-capillary issue. And what about Group 3 pulmonary diseases? Our patient was an active smoker, but there was no evidence of parenchymal lung disease on any of her chest imaging. I also believe she screened negative for sleep apnea, so OSA is not a factor here either. Exactly. And now next, group four, chronic thromboembolic disease. I think Dan nailed the head on this one. She had paradoxical embolism, and so it was definitely strongly considered as a possibility. Although CT chest was negative for PE, we know that VQ scan is a more sensitive test to rule out chronic thromboembolic disease. So that was done. It was normal, essentially ruling out this diagnosis. Oh yeah, last but not least, group five, everything else. So she did not have any symptoms, labs, or imaging findings to suggest sarcoidosis, hemolytic anemia, myoplurative disorders, renal failure, or metabolic disease. I think that takes care of everything in group five. So to sum it all, our final impression of the entire case was that she had most likely methamphetamine-related pulmonary hypertension versus, of course, idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. Wow, what an interesting case. And I really like how you essentially thought about the etiologies for pulmonary hypertension and knocked down the differential diagnosis one by one. We have the right heart cath. We have the echo that tells us that it's not going to be left-sided. We have pulmonary function testing and CT imaging of the chest that we know it's not going to be group three pulmonary hypertension. We have VQ scan. It's not CTEF. And you've done all the serologic evaluation, the lab workup for group five to really parse her down into either idiopathic PAH or related to her amphetamine use in the past. So I guess idiopathic is a diagnosis exclusion, but we are more confident that we haven't missed something that is important to diagnose or potentially treatable. We've talked a lot about diagnosis, but how did we take care of the patient next? Because she's got some issues here. Yeah, so honing down what was mentioned before, treating the pulmonary hypertension before closing the PFO is crucial in this case. So when she was on the cath table and having her numbers on her right heart cath, we actually performed a vasodilator challenge test to predict if she would respond to calcium channel blockers. I've definitely read about this, but how do you do this in practice? So it's an easy test that you can do when the patient's still on the cath lab table with the pulmonary catheter in place. You then administer an inhaled vasodilator, such as nitric oxide or epoprostenol, such as in our case. And what you look for is a change in her hemodynamics. And a positive vasodilator challenge test would consist of three of the following criteria. One, if there is a 10 millimeter mercury drop in her mean PA pressure. Two, if the drop is to a value that's less than 40 millimeter mercury. And three, if there is no change or an increase in the cardiac output. So essentially, the numbers to remember are 10, 40, and if there's no change or increase in the cardiac output. That's great. Thanks for going over that. I didn't actually know how to do this in practice. Great review. What did her test show? So for our patient, her vasodilator challenge was actually negative. She was then seen again by a pulmonary hypertension specialist and she was then started on combination therapy consisting of sildenafil and embrisintan. So for the positive vasodilator challenge, so you mentioned, again, that you want, number one, a fall in the mean PA pressure by 10 millimeters of mercury. And two, you want it to fall below 40 millimeters of mercury. So the third thing that you mentioned is to increase or unchanged cardiac output. And just to tease that out a little bit more, the reason for that is the classic equation V is equal to IR. 
the pressure gradient is basically equal to the flow multiplied by the resistance. And so we know with pulmonary hypertension, if you change the flow, you could potentially change the pressure gradients. And so what that third requirement is saying is give me the same flow. If you can basically give a vasodilator at the same flow and still have the same cardiac output going through the heart and then you could decrease the pulmonary pressures. That is basically passing the test. But if you give a pulmonary dilator and for whatever reason that sets up a hemodynamic change that your cardiac output is lower, then you can't really use that to tell me that the pulmonary pressure has actually changed because I dilated the pulmonary vasculature. It may have changed because I decreased pulmonary flow. And that's why that increase or unchanged cardiac output is necessary. Because if the cardiac output increases, that would actually increase the pressures in the lungs. And if in fact the cardiac output increases, but the pressures decrease, then that would show you that, yes, I am giving this patient a vasodilator and I'm actually bringing down their pulmonary pressures. That is such a good point. So like, for instance, say a patient gets a pulmonary vasodilator and uh, and they have like HCM or something else and they decrease their cardiac output, of course, their pulmonary pressures are going to decrease, right? Because there's just less flow going through the pulmonary vasculature. But that decrease in pulmonary pressures is more because of a decrease in total cardiac output rather than a true response to the pulmonary vascular resistance. And so obviously would not mean that a vasodilator is going to have an impact on the PVR. That's a really good point. We have to make sure that the vasodilator effect is a pure PVR reduction effect and not just augmenting the pressure because less cardiac output. Beautiful, beautiful. This makes so much more sense to me now. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. Those were great explanations. So you said that she was started on sildenafil and ambrosentan? Yes. She was seen again in a pulmonary hypertension clinic, and she was started on a combination therapy consisting of sildenafil and ambrosentan. And over the course of the several months, she had both subjective enhancement in her functional capacity and also objective improvement in her PA pressures and RV function on serial echocardiograms. It was after this that she was referred back to the structural clinic and she successfully underwent percutaneous closure of her PFO. Beautiful. Wow, wow that's, that's awesome. Phenomenal. And life was lived happily ever after. Wait, there's actually even better ending. So, <laughs> okay. Oh. <laughs> so she I won the lottery. So I was in the echo lab and I saw her most recent repeat echo. Wait. <laughs> And show that her RVSP is in the 20s and her RV size and function is completely normal. Oh, and wow. I love that you just said that because you highlighted a major point here. This is a major point that you just highlighted. Pulmonary pressure is coming down without knowing that the RV function has gotten better could actually be terrible. End stage RV failure with pulmonary hypertension, the, you know, all of a sudden you're noticing that the pulmonary pressures are coming down and usually the patient's doing poor clinically is a bad thing. But I just love you followed that up. The RVSP is down and the RV size and function has improved. Really, really beautiful. Oh, I love that point, Dan. Actually, so a humbling moment for me when I was a first-year cardiology fellow on the console service, it was actually a pre-op eval for a patient who on his echo had a blown out, weak, dysfunctional RV and the RVSP was not very high and the left side looked okay. You know, the patient had RSR prime and some T-wave inversions in the anterior leads. And I thought, hey, this patient has got to have 
ARVC or arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. And so that was my working differential. And I was lucky to be staffing this patient with one of our heart failure attendings who also specializes in pH. And she's like, actually, I think this patient may just have pH because of these reasons, but sure, let's work up ARVC as well. And all the evaluation for ARVC was negative. And we ended up being able to find an old echocardiogram that showed that the patient actually used to have a normal RV with an RVSP that was monstrously elevated. And so essentially, it was just isolated RV failure with normalized RVSP pulmonary pressures from the echo just because the RV wasn't able to produce pressures very high. So that was definitely a learning point for me, Dan. I'm glad you highlighted that. I didn't highlight that. Sean highlighted that. I just jumped out of my seat being very excited. So, <laughs> but Sean, that is great news. Uh, great. Wait, really, there's one more yeah. part. There's one more part. Ah, so, we're okay. getting, oh. <laughs> so we're echocardiogram. We actually did a bubble study again with the last echocardiogram. And guess what? After the closure, there was no bubbles at all on the other side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> Zero bubbles. That's very cool. That's very cool. So how do you put our whole case together? Because we started off with an MI, we had some wall motion abnormalities, we had massively elevated pulmonary pressures, there was a PFO in there. Like what's the what's the Occam's razor assessment here? I guess it's she had this underlying pH that nobody knew about, possibly from her methamphetamine use or idiopathic, like Sean said, and it just caused such high right-sided filling pressures, which caused that PFO to shunt from right to left. And I guess it's still a mysterious clot because we never found the source exactly, but the clot went into the coronary and caused an MI. Yeah, Gwen, and I, I think that's exactly right from what you guys say. And it just may be that that clot would never have caused any problems had her PFO not been so significant with a shunt caused by the elevated pulmonary pressures. And so I guess we can blame her methamphetamines for all of this, maybe. You know, maybe she's just somebody who would have had a quiet PFO and lived her life without any problems if it hadn't been for pulmonary hypertension. Yeah, this is definitely a win for Occam's razor over Hickam's dictum. It also really highlights the importance of your HMP. Your social history really informs that Occam's razor and really puts the things together. And I was even thinking when you started the case out, wow, I would commend this patient on stopping six months ago. And I'm so glad that she actually came to us when she already had quit. And now this could really uh, be another point to encourage her and say, wow, what you did was really good and give kudos on that change in her social habits. And I think also kudos to the team here, because I think there are many situations where you'd say, all right, well, she had probably an embolic STEMI. It was maybe the PFO, but her pulmonary pressures are high. So sorry, we can't really offer too much because we're worried about how this will impact your RV. But this not only shows a dedication to teasing out what was the ideology of pulmonary hypertension, but also using multimodality diagnostics, including multimodality imaging and invasive hemodynamics to figure out how best to treat it, but then also getting her back into the structural clinic. It really is a beautiful case that highlights the management of multiple seemingly disparate pathologies, but as part of a multidisciplinary team that I just have to say bravo and it speaks volumes about what you guys are doing and learning from over there in Lenkano. Yeah, 100% agree. And plus, as a fellow witnessing all of this, as I was following through her course, it was really awesome to witness collaboration between the interventional cardiologists, the structural team, the advanced heart failure, pulmonary hypertension docs that really brought everything together and, and really enhanced my experience, even as a fellow. Gwen here, you're a third-year cardiology fellow, and Sean, you're a second-year cardiology fellow, and we got a little taste of Lenkano, but we'd love to hear from you. What makes your heart flutter about training at your program? <laughs> 
This is my sixth year now at uh, Lankanaw since I did residency, and, and I just love it here. It, it's just such a nice mix in general. We have the academics, but then also the community hospital feel, such a wide variety of patients. And it's such a big heart center. We have structural, we have mechanical support, we have advanced heart failure and and pulmonary hypertension. You also get the -the run-of-the-mill chest pain and congestive heart failure. You really see it all here. And plus, I think my favorite part is our co-fellows. I love all our co-fellows, including Sean. I love you too, Gwen. (laughs) (laughs) That I'm so part. glad you said including Sean because uh, it just makes it less awkward now. <laughs> <laughs> and just to add to Gwen's point, the thing that really drew me to Lankanaw was the faculty. I did experience how supportive the faculty was even when I was an internal medicine resident. Everyone was super supportive when they knew that I was going to do cardiology and really invited me and, and also made me part of the family even when I was a second or third year medicine resident. And that didn't change when I was a fellow. And even with program leadership changing with Dr. Romanelli stepping up as the program director, that part of Lankanol never changed. Dr. Romanelli has been super supportive, just as Dr. Burt was before her. That is so true. Dr. Romanelli is fantastic. And, you know, she's doing a great job so far as our program director. And all of the attendings are just so open. You know, I call them not only for medical advice, but I call them for life advice as well. So... Guys, I'm like totally like you can't see this, but I have goosebumps all of it. And it could be because it's late at night, but you really have captured my imagination with the educational content and the compassionate patient care and leaving no stone unturned. But then this collegiality and this family vibe about the program and Dr. Romanelli and leadership is just unbelievably beautiful. Yeah, Lankanaw is a great place. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, thank you so much for spending your evenings with us. We learned so much. And there were so many pearls here because it can be hard to think about how to put everything together. You guys put this together in a way that's very direct and succinct, and we know exactly what the next issue is going to be. But in real practice, these turns and nooks and crannies can be very confusing. And so it's just, I think the dedication of clinical excellence and cardiovascular education is very palpable. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a treat. Real pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. So now for the ECPR segment, a little learning with our heart failure, pulmonary hypertension doctor, Dr. John Clark, who did train here actually as well, and then went to Temple for his advanced heart failure year. And luckily he came back to us and he is a beloved faculty member. So he will be speaking a little bit further on pulmonary hypertension. Thank you, Gwen, for that kind introduction. I am going to speak more about our patient's pulmonary hypertension, which we think set off a chain of events that led to her presentation. The first thing that I like to do when I get a pulmonary hypertension or right ventricular failure consult is to look at the echocardiogram. And I ask two questions. How much resistance is the right ventricle facing from the pulmonary arterial system? And how is it dealing with the resistance that it's seeing? It's important to remember that the right ventricle is a thin-walled, distensible chamber that moves blood with very, very low gradients. So when there's a rise in pressures on the right side, it doesn't take long before we can visually see those changes on echo. When I look at the echo, I'm also thinking about what kind of right heart cath results I would see if I was performing that catheterization at the same time that the echo was performed. There's been endless studies on echo-derived hemodynamics. It's important to know what the echo can give you, what it can't give you, and what potential pitfalls are for any one of these measures. But on most echoes, you can reasonably estimate the range of pulmonary vascular resistance by looking at characteristics of the pulse wave Doppler profile of the right ventricular outflow tract, 
You can estimate PA systolic pressure, diastolic pressure, mean PA, all by looking at the tricuspid regurgitation and pulmonic valve regurgitation jet velocities. You can estimate left-sided filling pressures by looking at the E over E primes. You can estimate right-sided filling pressures by looking at characteristics of the IBC. And you can estimate stroke volume and cardiac output. While not perfect, you can get a good hemodynamic picture of the patient in front of you from the echo. Next, we focus on the right ventricle. What's the size? Is it dilated or normal? We look at the function. We can see visually how well the right heart's squeezing, and we can also look at various other direct and indirect measures to give us a sense of function. Next, we look at the RV-LV ratio and RV forces acting on the left ventricle. So we can look at the septum and see is it flattened in systole or diastole, which might indicate right ventricular pressure or volume overload. When we're putting all these things together, if we see an RV that's dilated or dysfunctional, and we also see high resistance from the pulmonary artery tree, well, that's building a picture for pulmonary hypertension. If, however, we see a right ventricle that's dilated or functioning poorly and it's facing low resistance from the pulmonary artery tree, maybe afterload's not the problem. We could, at that point, look for a primary RV contractility issue or a preload issue. Now, Sean did an excellent job of reviewing the WHO groups for pulmonary hypertension and the investigation that we did into the patient that we had. What we ended up with was either an idiopathic pulmonary hypertension or a methamphetamine-induced pulmonary hypertension. PH and amphetamines have an intertwined history. PAH was first described in 1891 by Romberg and basically regarded as a pretty rare disease until the 1960s when amphetamine-like appetite suppressant in Europe led to a surge of cases. We've then seen further surges in the 90s from fenfluramine, fenteramine, or fenfen, and other amphetamine-like diet drugs. Also, over the past few decades, we've seen a rise of amphetamines and methamphetamines to become the second most abused drug after opiates. With this rise, we've also seen a rise in associated pulmonary hypertension. I think the best look comparing these two groups comes out of the Stanford Pulmonary Hypertension Group. Zamanian et al. in 2017 published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and prospectively enrolled idiopathic and methamphetamine-induced pulmonary hypertension. At baseline, they had similar functional status as measured by a six-minute walk test. The methamphetamine group had more advanced heart failure symptoms subjectively, Hemodynamically, they also had higher right atrial pressures and lower stroke volume indexes, which is calculated by cardiac index divided by heart rate times 1,000. On echo, they had more dilated, more dysfunctional right ventricles. The methamphetamine-associated group had more than double the risk for clinical worsening or death compared with patients with idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. They found that the methamphetamine group was subjectively reported to be less adherent to therapy. They also received less IV and subcutaneous prostacyclins as treatment, which are usually used in more advanced disease. The reason for this was stated as concerns for the delivery site and possible infection risk and so forth. They tried to sort this out with a multivariate model and still thought that the meth group had uh, significantly worse outcomes compared with the idiopathic group. In the current era, treatment of pulmonary arterial hypertension doesn't reverse or stabilize the pathophysiology of the disease, but instead seeks to reduce RV afterload by multiple pathways which vasodilate the pulmonary arteries. Medication-wise, there's about six different classes of medications we can use. The prostacyclins or prostacycline analogs, and these can be IV, sub-Q, PO, or inhaled agents. The PDE5 inhibitors such as sildenafil and tadalafil. The endothelin receptor antagonists, bosentin, ambrosentin, macetentin, 
the soluble guanylate cyclase stimulators such as Riosaguat, the selective prostacyclin receptor agonists such as Selexapag, and in an increasingly select number of patients with a positive vasodilator challenge and normal cardiac output, calcium channel blockers can be considered in early disease. And finally, the old paradigm for treatment of pulmonary hypertension with medications was to start a single agent, wait until there was clinical worsening, start another agent, wait until there was clinical worsening, and so on and so forth. The Ambition trial in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2015 looked at single agent versus combination of agents, and they looked at tadalafil, ambrosentin, or the combination of the two. Their primary endpoint was clinical failure event, which they defined as the first occurrence of a composite endpoint of death, hospitalization for worsening PAH, disease progression, or unsatisfactory long-term clinical response, and found that the combination group reached this clinical failure event in 18%, the single agents alone, Tadalafil reached in 28%, Ambrosentin reached it in 34%, so clearly a benefit from the combination therapy during a mean duration follow-up of a little over 600 days. They also found that the combined group had a greater decrease in B-type NP and a greater improvement in six-minute walk tests. I'd like to thank the CardioNerds team for making us a part of this episode. And so now a message for the applicants by our program director, Dr. Janine Romanelli. Hi, I am Janine Romanelli, the program director at Lionel Medical Center. I'd like to thank CardioNerds for the opportunity to do this podcast. It was a great way to interact, learn, and meet other people, especially during this environment of COVID-19. I'd also like to compliment Sean and Gwen on a great job. This podcast is just an example of what we do here at Lankanel Medical Center. And thank the fellows for their unbelievably kind words. As they stated, I am the new program director and cannot be more excited for the role. I continue to be proud to drive down the driveway at Lankanel Medical Center every morning and be proud of what we do here. The program offers a perfect balance of academic medicine with a community feel. We've been training fellows for over 25 years. The program provides an environment that allows fellows to develop into an excellent, well-rounded, board-certified cardiologists with the ability to pursue their own individual interest. We offer an outstanding teaching program with a unique curriculum with an audience response system that prepares fellows for the boards. This is run by our associate program director, Dr. James Burke. There are also almost daily conferences run by both faculty and fellows. The hospital is a very large referral center, providing fellows to take part in complex cardiovascular care, including a very active structural heart program and ECMO program that is led by our other associate program director, Dr. Eric Ganahl. Along with the many clinical opportunities, there are plenty of opportunities for research, both clinical and basic science. We are very active in investigative research and are active with basic science research with our affiliation with Lankanal Institute of Medical Research. It is a very unique program. It provides fellows the opportunity to pursue their own individual goals, whether this be electrophysiology and interventional or pursue a career in structural heart disease, both imaging or interventional. This can be met. Fellows can also pursue imaging, including echocardiography, nuclear medicine, CT, and MRI. They also may pursue their interest in Other fields, including vascular medicine, heart failure and pulmonary hypertension, lipidology, cardiogenetics, sports medicine, and cardio-oncology. We are a very diverse group, both the faculty and the fellows, and across the medical center. We celebrate this diversity and feel that it makes us stronger. 
When you join Lankanel Medical Center, you become part of our family. If you choose to leave here later to pursue a career, the fellows continue to keep in contact. I get messages frequently from fellows that have graduated. I get emails and text messages about cases or things their fellows are pursuing in their career, and I could not be prouder. If you choose to pursue a career in cardiovascular medicine, I hope you take the time to look at our fellowship program. Thank you for your time. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the Cardiners Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description, as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Avalyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Oh my gosh, I I, I just I have to just take a second and share a, the scariest moment of my life. I was rounding with the cardiomyopathy attending back in residency. And was, the, was I, the attending scary or was the story scary? <laughs> uh, <laughs> was, I'm wondering who it was. <laughs> uh, the, attending, <laughs> the attending was Dr. Kavita Sharma, who is uh, an amazing cardiomyopathy attending. We've had her on the show. She was just, just did a, a great uh, hit episode on HFBAP. And she was like kind of quizzing me on the differential diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. And I said that WHO group two was pulmonary because I was like, pulmonary hypertension. So probably group two is pulmonary. And she was like, no, it's the heart. The heart is first. Pulmonary disease is like group three. And I never forget that ever again. It's actually still how I, (laughs) when I go to the WHO classes, I like literally am like, it's the heart. The heart is number two. <laughs> the heart comes before the lungs. <laughs> the heart comes before the lungs. How can I make such a mistake? Anyway, but I digress. But maybe that'll uh, help somebody else out so that they don't get that wrong in the future.